Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 39, Wild Boar and the Dung Wagon. After the death of Mary of Burgundy in March 1482, the Low Countries were thrust into a period of turmoil, the likes of which they had not seen for around <coughs> five whole years. The reigning sovereign was dead, and her heir, Philip, was not even four years old. In Flanders, the estates, and particularly the city of Ghent, successfully set a course of obstruction against Maximilian, defying his attempts to hold the regency for his young son and stopping him from continuing waging war against France. Because of this, Maximilian was backed into a corner and forced to sign the embarrassing Treaty of Arras with the French king Louis XI in late 1482. One of the consequences of this was that Louis withdrew the support he had been giving to destabilizing elements that existed across the Burgundian realm. Although the defiance of Flanders had thwarted Maximilian's plans against France, stopping the war also allowed him to put more energy into negating the prickly thorns of rebellion that had risen, particularly in Liège and Utrecht. Within this context, the two most powerful bishops in the Low Countries would face some difficulties of their own between 1482 and 1483. One of them would be stabbed in the face and his body dumped in a river, while the other would find himself being taken prisoner and hauled off in a fertilizer wagon to Amersfoort, literally sitting in a pile of poo. As we spoke about at the end of the last episode, in the weeks between her riding accident and eventual expiration, Mary of Burgundy had done everything she could to solidify her husband Maximilian's position on top of the Burgundian ruling apparatus. Remember that after their marriage, Mary and Maximilian had secretly defied the state's general by altering the terms of their wedding contract to make it so that in the event of her premature death, Maximilian would inherit her lands. On top of this, as she lay bedridden, Mary had endeavoured to get all the necessary people to swear oaths of fealty to Maximilian as the rightful guardian of their children. Straight after her death, therefore, Maximilian claimed the right of regency for his young son, Philip, who at not even four years old had now become Duke Philip IV of Burgundy, Count of Flanders, Count of Holland, and all the other titles that came along with it. On the 27th of April, 1482, an assembly of the States General was summoned by Maximilian and it gathered in an Augustinian monastery in Ghent. Here they were welcomed by the pensionary of Brussels and spokesman of the States General, Hort Rulans. He had been among the most influential obstructors of Charles the Bold in his final years. If you remember back to when Huguenot and Humbercourt had been executed because of that scandalous letter that Mary had sent off to Louis XI, well, Hort Rulans played a big role in making this letter public. Maximilian managed to get him on side, however, and gave him the role of welcoming this assembly, in Dutch. Before supportively reading out Maximilian's statement of position, in French. The gist of his speech was that, even though Maximilian was about to inherit a bunch of lands and titles in Austria and Hungary, he had decided 
to stay and protect his children's rights and titles in the Low Countries, as well as to continue protecting their subjects and lands. As Helmut Koenigsberger succinctly put it, quote, The States General received this speech coolly. End quote. Over the next two days, the Brabantine and Flemish delegations took turns to rip into Maximilian's handling of affairs over the previous five years. Brabant complained that he had failed to consult any of them on his dealings with France and that nobody even knew what the state of peace talks were or if any were even happening. The financial demands of war had left their provinces impoverished and their people were facing starvation and, as such, the only course now was to seek peace immediately. Further to this, they suggested the provinces must establish a true union so as to thwart future French aggression without needing to depend on the sovereign. The Flemish, dominated by the Gentenars, were even more defiantly aggressive, outright rejecting Maximilian's rights to regency and telling the other members that they had already sent representatives to Louis XI seeking peace terms, and that everybody else should do the same. A majority of the provinces were on board with this general rancor, Holland and Hanno being the exceptions, albeit rather significant ones. Not even a week after this, the French invaded Flanders again and went on a pillaging rampage through several towns and villages. In the States General, most of the provinces now got behind Maximilian, including Brabant, Flanders, however, would only recognize him as the head of the country and determined that a guardianship council would be set up by which Flanders would be governed on behalf of the infant Philip. With their backyard under threat, the Flemish set about negotiating with the French to get them to go away. The French were prepared to do this, so long as Maximilian's daughter, Margaret of Austria, became betrothed to the Dauphin, Charles. To many of the Flemish, and particularly the Gentenars, this would have seemed a fair deal. During the following month or so, Louis XI had perhaps his greatest chance to truly divide Flanders from the rest of the Burgundian domains. The Flemish were so sick of Maximilian and the warmongering of the ducal government that they were more open to the possibilities of tighter French conciliation than usual. However, Louis XI had always proven himself unwilling to compromise very far beyond his own immense sense of ambition and entitlement. There was also the matter that, on a class level, the wealthy urban patricians and nouveau riche, politically powerful workers' guilds that the Low Countries boasted, were unlikely to get what they wanted from the divinely ordained and autocratic French king. As Königsberger wrote, quote, Time and again, the Ghent patricians and guildsmen misinterpreted the attitude of Louis XI, and time and again, the French let them down. Rationally, the kings of France should have consistently supported the Genters and the Flemings against their archenemy, Maximilian. Alternatively, for reasons of princely solidarity, they, being the French monarchs, might have been expected to come to terms with Maximilian and support him against his rebellious subjects. In practice, French policy was opportunistic, vacillating, and, in the end, ineffective. The French court despised the bourgeois Flemings and seems to have felt uncomfortable in having them as allies. End quote. As negotiations continued, Louis XI made excessive demands that served to strengthen a sense of unity 
in the States General, rather than go to work on further deepening their divisions. In hindsight, it was truly a missed opportunity. Ghent, in particular, was ripe for the French king's picking. Ghent had an extra reason for being so contemptuous of Maximilian. The year before, the town's estates had demanded budgetary control of Flanders' finances. The upshot of this was that the city's high bailiff, a popular figure called Jan van Dardezele, was murdered. It was widely believed that this had been committed by the Duke's men, and popular blame fell on the Lord of Gaasbeek, Philip de Hoorn, who was a ducal ally. This, on top of all the myriad of grievances we have been going into over the previous episodes, incited Ghent to throw its weight around in such an incongruous way. In July 1482, the three members of Flanders set up an Act of Eternal Union, which was almost immediately shown to be neither united nor eternal. Bruges and Ypres were open to supporting Maximilian as regent, while Ghent remained irascible in its resolution. Then, the city wildly gave Maximilian the fiscal finger and started minting its own coins in the name of the young Archduke Philip. This naturally caused outrage at the ducal court. Ghent had incurred the violent wrath of Flemish counts more than several times in the past, and often for less incendiary and rebellious acts than this. However, at this time, Maximilian simply did not have the imperium necessary to make Ghent accountable. What's more, they literally had his two young children in their possession. What's the saying? Possession is nine-tenths of the law? They had the young Archduke Philip, so they were going to bloody well mint coins in his name. They also had his younger sister, Margaret, so they decided to sell her off to France in return for peace. Ghent was not afraid to utilise Maximilian's children, but in much the same way that highborn children were routinely being used, and by this stage, we should not be that surprised. For centuries now, we have seen the temerity of urban citizens in the Low Countries, but particularly in Ghent, to defy their sovereign rulers and then find ways of justify having done so. This had been an issue for the Counts of Flanders, going all the way back to Guy of Dampierre and beyond. Having seen off the Valois Burgundian dukes, Ghent was not going to back down in the face of the Habsburg dynasty. Maximilian had little option but to concede to Ghent's demands in order to get them back on side. He offered to sack whatever ducal administrators they had major problems with and then finally signed the Treaty of Arras in December 1482. Do you remember the previous Treaty of Arras? We banged on about it for a long time after its conclusion between Philip the Good and Charles VII in 1435. It had been very favourable to Burgundy, essentially granting it independence from France and giving it those hotly contested Somme towns. Nearly 50 years later, this Treaty of Arras would be the opposite, almost completely to the advantage of France and the now ailing King Louis XI. If you are keen on the details of late medieval peace treaties, Philip de Comines lists 69 of the conditions therein, but the short and curlies of it were that there would be a perpetual peace between France and Burgundy. Yeah, right. That Maximilian's daughter, Margaret of Austria, was to be married to the Dauphin, and until she was of an age enough to do this, was to be sent off to Arras and then given to the custody of one of the French princes of the blood, whereafter, according to Comines, quote, 
The king shall take care to bring her up as his eldest daughter. End quote. The lands of Artois, Burgundy, Franche-Comte, as well as other fancy-sounding French places, Marconnois, Auxerrois, Psalms, Bar-sur-Saint, and de Noyer, quote, shall be given in dower with her, Margaret, to the Dauphin, to be enjoyed by them, their heirs, by that marriage, whether male or female, forever, but in failure thereof, to return to the Duke Philip, her brother, and his heirs, end quote. Another big addition to this treaty was that the Parliament of Paris would be once more recognised as the higher court of justice in Flanders. As for what the French had to give up, this included removing the troops that Louis XI had recently sent to Luxembourg, as well as discontinuing his support for rebels in Liège and Utrecht. Article 61, according to Comines, reads, quote, The king, after the peace, will assist the duke against William de Arenberg. End quote. And this William de Arenberg is, drumroll, William de Lamarck, the wild boar of the Ardennes. As all of this had been happening in 1482, the wild boar had roused himself to action, taken out a prince bishop, and become a big enough threat to warrant a place of his very own in this new treaty. We last spoke about the bishopric of Liège briefly in episode 37, when we saw the Prince Bishop Louis de Bourbon petition Mary of Burgundy to let him get out of paying tribute to the Burgundian dukes. At the same time, he was also asking Mary to give compensation for property lost during the wars in Liège to his enemy-turned-bodyguard William de la Marque, the wild boar of the Ardennes. We are going to find out that making your enemy your bodyguard is probably not the smartest move. The creative nom de plume, the wild boar of the Ardennes, by the way, has been said to have derived from Delamarque having an obscenely prominent lower jaw that gave him a particularly porcine appearance. But more likely, it stems from his family's coat of arms. As we saw in the days after the uproar around Humbercourt and Huguenot, Mary renounced her claims to the Prince Bishopric and Liège, once again, technically became free from Burgundy. The wild boar of the Ardennes is a character who has been mythologized throughout the centuries in such a way that the fact and fiction of his life have become so intertwined that it is sometimes difficult to separate one from the other. In 1823, centuries after he had died, Scottish writer and one of the forerunners of the historical novel, Sir Walter Scott, immortalised Delamarque in fiction with his book Quentin Durard, about a Scottish archer in the service of Louis XI. It is historically inaccurate, but here is a description of Lamarque, who is one of the antagonists therein, and worth relating if only for the fact that it reflects the mythical nature of his character. Quote, The Wild Boar of the Ardennes a captain of pillagers and murderers, who would take a man's life for the value of his gabardine, and who slays priests and pilgrims as if they were so many lance knights and men-at-arms. End quote. Over centuries, his reputation certainly cemented itself as a fearsome one. As for contemporaries of Lamarck, however, what they thought of him probably depended on what they thought of the Burgundian government, where their loyalties lay in regards to Liège and what they thought of the French king. Lamarck had originally been a supporter of Charles the Bold, but 
then had become a thorn in the side of Louis de Bourbon, the Prince Bishop, and in 1474 had even burned down a church and killed one of Louis's servants. Louis de Bourbon had attempted to pacify Lamarck eventually by ceding him the lands of the Franchimont. Jean de Molinet, who was a Burgundian court poet, come chronicler, and successor to Chastelaine, but whose work has also been doubted for its veracity and usefulness, worth saying, tells us that following this, the relationship between Lamarck and the Prince Bishop improved and was, quote, good and cordial, end quote. This, at least, is supported by Comines as well, who tells us that Lamarck was someone whom Louis de Bourbon had, quote, entrusted and preferred, end quote. Molinet goes on to tell us that after his accession to rule in the Franchimont, Lamarck became more confident and enjoyed wider support in Liège than Louis de Bourbon himself, who, as we know, never really enjoyed the total support of the Liégeois. Soon, and this is paraphrasing Molinet, their relationship deteriorated, and the enmity grew to higher levels than it had ever been. Lamarck found himself being banished from Liège, whereupon he made his way south and more into the orbit of Louis XI, who was more than happy to give succour to anybody who was giving strife to Burgundian allies like the Prince Bishop of Liège. Although he did not receive ordinances from the French king, he was allowed to raise a force in France, and with that force, he was going to try and retake Liège. Another source, the Chronicles of Monstrelet, go into far greater detail than Molinet and Comines. But this is a friendly reminder that Monstrelet himself had now been dead for nearly 30 years, and someone else was cracking on with his work. So, Monstrelet non-Monstrelet, or as we have taken to calling him, the Mon non-Mon, tells us that in the autumn of 1482, quote, Sir William Delamarck, surnamed the Wild Boar of the Ardennes, conspired to levy a bloody war against that noble prince and reverend father in God, the Lord Louis de Bourbon, Bishop of Liège, by whom he had been brought up and educated. His object was to assassinate the bishop, that his brother might succeed him in the bishopric. To assist him in his abominable enterprise, the King of France supplied him with men, and he collected in and about Paris a body of 3,000 good-for-nothing fellows, whom he clothed in scarlet jackets, having on their left sleeve the figure of a boar's head. They were lightly armed, and in this state he led them into the country of Liège. End quote. Meanwhile, an army was raised in Liège by the Prince Bishop, Louis de Bourbon, and it gathered in Huy, while another was also assembled in Liège proper, to be commanded on his behalf by Jan van Horn. Suddenly, Maximilian had yet another issue heaped on his buffet table of crises, as a French-funded rebel force was now threatening the stability of Liège, which he was keen to try and get back into the Burgundian orbit. He sent troops led by the Prince of Orange to their aid, and the general advice was for Louis de Bourbon to sit tight, in Huy, and await their arrival. For some reason, however, Louis and Jan van Horn did not do this, but rather decided to go out and take on Lamarck's force. According to Mon Non Mon, this was because Delamarck had loyal agents embedded within the bishop's retinue, who he instructed to encourage the bishop that confrontation was the best course of action. Quote, Under pretense, therefore, of attachment to his person, they advised him strongly to march against the enemy at the gates, 
and assured him that they would all follow him in arms and support and defend him to the last drop of blood, and there was not the smallest doubt that the wild boar would be defeated with disgrace. End quote. Whatever the reason, on the 30th of August 1482, an army marched out of Liège and straight into the waiting arms of Lamarck's force. Soon, the wild boar had the upper hand, vanquishing the vanguard of this Liège force and then turning his attention to the force coming from Huy. According to Mon Non Mon, it was at this point that the treachery of the Liègeois was unveiled. Having convinced Louis to go out and take Lamarck down, quote, the bishop complied with their advice, sallied out of Liège, and advanced to where Lamarck was posted. Lamarck, observing this, quitted his ambush and marched straight to the bishop, and the traitors of Liège, now finding their bishop in the hands of his enemy, fled back to their town without striking a blow. The bishop was greatly dismayed at this, for he had now no one with him but his servants and vassals, while Lamarck came up to him and without saying a word gave him a severe cut across the face and then killed him with his own hand. This done, Lamarck had the body stripped and placed naked in front of the cathedral church of St. Lambert in Liège, where he was shown dead to all the inhabitants who wished to see him. End quote. Camines and Molinet vary both saying that his body was thrown into the river, but whatever the exact details, it was in this manner that the reign of Louis de Bourbon ended. The puppet bishop, whom Philip the Good had installed as sovereign of the troublesome territory in 1456, who had faced revolt and unrest from the beginning, and who, despite being despised by large and powerful segments of the territory for his indulgent lifestyle, had somehow managed to hold on to his tenuous position for nearly three decades. If Mon Non Mon, the works of which tended to favour Burgundy over France, is to be believed, then Louis had underestimated the lingering descent in the city of Liège and fallen into a trap that involved his deceit by elements in Liège who were either coordinated by or at least in consultation with William de Is anybody really surprised that this happened? We are not. Adieu, Louis de Bourbon. As for Lamarck, well, it only makes sense if we wrap up his story too, even if it is going to take us a bit further into the future than we might wish. Following Louis's murder, he aimed to have his son installed as the new Prince Bishop of Liège. I know Mon Non Mon said his brother, but everybody else says his son. He was going to do this by forcing the chapters of St. Lambert to appoint him. He had the houses of rich patricians in the city destroyed and forced anyone who had reason to fear his wrath to flee Liège, including many of the clergy who were responsible for appointing the next bishop. Of those that remained, he had them declare him as the new governor of Liège and insisted that his son be named bishop. This last matter became hotly contested, and so they did what they always did and sent word to the Pope, Sixtus IV, who was going to have to make the final decision. Lamarck's other challenge was that by now Maximilian had raised an army of Brabanters who were heading towards Liège to take Lamarck's newly won lands from him. Lamarck might have been able to counter this given that he had enjoyed the support of the French king up until this point. The problem he faced now, however, was that by this time Maximilian had ceded to Louis XI and agreed to the Treaty of Arras. And as we mentioned earlier, 
the French king agreed to stop supporting the wild boar of the Ardennes in the Treaty of Arras. The Burgundian ducal forces began rampaging back across Hanau and Liège, and Lamarck and his kin, in turn, went rampaging around themselves, creating general havoc and confusion for anyone just trying to live their lives. They attacked a Brabantine army in early 1483 and suffered heavy losses, having to basically fortify themselves in Liège and Huy. As everybody waited to hear who the Pope would choose for bishop, the places where the wild boar still ruled became prone to paranoia and violence, as he was fiercely against peace and was likely to murder anyone who suggested it. Despite this, the town of Liège managed to broker a peace with the Prince of Orange in April 1483. Everything still depended, however, on the papal verdict. Who was going to be the next bishop? When word of this decision arrived, it was not in Lamarck's favour. Rather, Jan van Horn was selected to take over from the murdered Louis de Bourbon. The wild boar was wildly displeased, took up arms and threatened to go on a destructive rampage once more, but he was talked down by being given some more fancy titles and a large chunk of money. The new bishop took a conciliatory view to it all and endeavoured to maintain the peace by bringing the wild boar into his favour. Jeff Lonerson wrote beautifully of this moment of the transition of power. Quote, It is typical of the mentality of the time that an excommunicated and exiled murderer, arsonist, looter, and traitor was now treated as a friend by the new prince bishop, whose predecessor he had single-handedly killed. End quote. However, it was not long before the new prince bishop, Jan van Horn, found Lamarck to be overbearing and meddlesome and continually pushing for more power in the region. He claimed the castle of Gravenbroek and made alliances that were clearly offensive to Burgundian stability. Eventually, Maximilian decided that something needed to be done about this, and he charged the Lord of Montigny, Frederick von Horn, with the task of getting the wild boar of the Ardennes to Maastricht, where he could face the courts of both Brabant and Liège. This did not happen until the middle of 1485, so jumping a little bit ahead in our general chronology. But it took quite some coordination, including the knowing participation of the new Prince Bishop. Therefore, in June 1485, the new Prince Bishop Jan van Horn, deceitfully pretending to be friends with Lamarck, made a trip with him to St. Trouden, and they stayed in a manor that Lamarck had there. They were joined in the evening by the Prince Bishop's kin, Frederick van Horn, whose mission remained secret. At some stage during the evening's feasting and chat, Frederick came to challenge Lamarck to a horse race. Lamarck foolishly took the bait, and following dinner, they went off to a field outside where Frederick's men, surely enough, were waiting in ambush. They captured Lamarck, took him prisoner, and showed him Maximilian's order for his arrest. Then he was carted off to Maastricht, where he immediately faced a court of the commons, which promptly sentenced him to death. The following morning, he was brought to the Freithof in Maastricht, he was put upon a scaffold, and there, the wild boar of the Ardennes head was deprived of its connectivity with his neck. One Liegeois history written in the 19th century related that, as he stood on the scaffold, he scanned the crowd of observers and deliberately found the new prince bishop, his false friend, Jan van Horn, 
who had deceitfully led him to capture. After locking eyes, the wild boar of the Ardennes promptly lifted his beard and better exposed his neck to the crowd and the axe. Although this is probably apocryphal, he also apparently proclaimed that his neck would bleed for a long time. And these words, if true, were extremely prescient. Given that his sons and his brothers would maintain a bloody civil war across Liège that would continue until 1492. An interesting tidbit to the story of the wild boar and his, let's say, rocky relationship with Louis de Bourbon is how the event has inspired later works. Earlier, we mentioned the 1823 novel Quentin Durard by Sir Walter Scott, who is often cited as the first historical novelist. Even though he set the story in 1468, Scott anachronistically employed the actual murder of Louis de Bourbon by William de Lamargue to inspire the penultimate scene in part two. The context of the assassination in the book is vastly different, with Scott writing it as the wild boar and the riotous people of Liège feasting and celebrating, and then Louis de Bourbon is suddenly dragged in having been captured and Lamarck incites his followers to murder him there and then. Some five years after Walter Scott published this book, the French romantic artist Eugène Delacroix, who we wanted to mention if only because of how satisfying it is to say Delacroix, produced a painting called The Murder of the Bishop of Liège, based on Scott's work of course. It was commissioned by the then Duke of Orléans, but eventually the last king of France, Louis Philippe. The painting is small, but super impressive. Today it hangs in the Louvre, so if you ever find yourself there and you just want to show off to somebody you know or random strangers, go and stand in front of it and lay out the information and context behind it. If you want to sound really swanky, then you can quote this critique of the work from 19th century art critic Théophile Gautier, who wrote of it, quote, for the movement and fury of its composition, it is an inimitable masterpiece, a painted whirlwind, everything moving frantically in this little space, emerging from which one seems to hear lamentations and thunder. Never have we seen thrown onto a canvas a crowd more hard, more swarming, more screaming, or more enraged. This painting is truly tumultuous and loud. We hear it as much as we see it. End quote. That sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? Well, I can tell you, I stood in front of it for five minutes and I didn't hear a thing. Now, this tidbit aside, those adjectives, hard, swarming, screaming, and enraged, are all pretty apt ones for where we find ourselves in our story. Because, believe it or not, simultaneous to these shenanigans in Liège, a whole other Prince Bishopric was tearing itself apart in the Low Countries. The astute listeners out there will remember that we said in the Treaty of Arras, Louis XI agreed to stop supporting rebels in Liège and in Utrecht. So now we are going to utilize an ad break to do a U-turn back to Utrecht. We'll see you on the other side. Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the oft-ignored stories of the African continent. 
from the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo. Find the History of Africa podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Welcome back. For the second part of this episode, we are going to return to the Stixer Orlo, the civil war in Utrecht, the opening salvos of which we saw last episode with the Battle of Scherpenzeel. Remember Scarpenzeel? We mentioned it before and we're going to mention it again because it is the spiritual center of Dutch history fanatics and war gamers. And we love them. Similar to pretty much every other part of the Low Countries at the time, the party factionalism inside Utrecht had been developing for a while. This war isn't sometimes referred to as the Second Utrecht Civil War for no reason. But despite the conflict having its own indigenous origins inside Utrecht, as we discussed in the previous episode, one of the key factors in the war was the simultaneous hook and cod war going on in neighbouring Holland. The fighting in Holland spilled over into Utrecht, where exiles from Holland fled and were harboured by sympathetic allies. There had long been tensions between Holland and Utrecht. The Prince Bishops of Utrecht had clashed numerous times with the Counts of Holland as the latter grew in strength and took over lands which had previously been ruled by the former. We talked about this way back, way back, in episode 11, the murder of Floris V. So it shouldn't be really surprising that these two conflicts coalesced into a conjoined conflagration of connected consequences. By the end of 1481, the Hook and Cod Wars in Holland had essentially resulted in victory for the Cods. With support from Maximilian, they had taken over important towns such as Leiden, Delft, The Hague and Amsterdam. However, across the border in Utrecht and in the ecclesiastical lands of the Sticht, those with a long-standing disaffection with the Burgundian puppet bishop, David of Burgundy, had become aligned with Hook partisans who had been forced to flee Holland. Here, under the leadership of a guy who we mentioned before, Jan van Montfort III, they had successfully kicked David out of Utrecht, again, and he was left twiddling his thumbs in his castle at Wijk by Durstede, hoping that Maximilian would find a chance to come and help him out. The rebellious city of Utrecht was joined by Amersfoort in this uprising against the Prince Bishop. Maximilian, embroiled as he was in the war with France in 1481, as well as all the stuff going on with Ghent, appointed his Stadthalter in Holland, Josse de Lelang, to lead his forces against this new hook-aligned uprising that had risen against his late wife's uncle, the Bishop of Utrecht. After the Battle of Scherpenzeel, way, in October 1481, Lelang sent an army from Holland to secure the Lechdijk, just south of Utrecht. The ultimate objective was to reseat David on his throne, but by securing the River Lech, the Burgundian forces would be able to blockade Utrecht and put the pinch on Utrechters by cutting off their supply lines. To this purpose, Lelang's army pillaged the town of Utfas, which lies between Utrecht and the River Lech. They destroyed some manors of Hook partisans, and to drive his point home, Lelang had the main tower in Utfas burned to the ground. In response, the Hook leader in Utrecht, Jan van Montfort, compelled a civilian force of, it is thought, around 2,000 uppity and upset Utrechters 
who got in small boats and set off to break the blockade. At the same time, the mayor of Utrecht, Jan van Lanskroon, led another civilian force out by foot, and together these bodies surprised the Hollander army, earning themselves a pretty tidy victory at what is called the Battle of Freisweg. On their return to the city, they were greeted as heroes, and Montfort handed out a couple of knighthoods. There you go, knighthood for you, knighthood for you. Different sources give different numbers, but a significant number of Hollander prisoners were brought back with them into Utrecht, and their ransoms reportedly earned the city around a year's worth of income. They were going to need it. In early December 1481, the Utrecht-slash-Ammersforters dealt another blow to Holland and Maximilian when they plundered the town of Naarden. Naarden's main income came from weaving. On the 9th of December, a large wool fair was held annually in the town of Diefenter, meaning that a large portion of Naarden's population had left the town to go and attend this fair. A group of around 600 armed men from Utrecht and Amersfoort stealthily moved towards Naarden and hid themselves just outside the town. Although Naarden was ripe for the taking, the Utrechters did not have any siege weapons, so they decided that the best course of action was going to be deception. In the evening of the 10th of December, three of them dressed up as farmer women, each complete with an egg basket under their arms. They kidnapped a real farmer woman and brought her to one of the city gates, where she said the appropriate password to the unsuspecting watchman that would let them in. When the porter opened the gate, the ruse must have quickly become apparent to him when he fell victim to a bit of stabby stab stab to the throat. The intruders quickly signaled to the rest of the troops that the way was clear, and the lot of them went about plundering Narden. The people remaining in Narden, who had not gone to the trade fair in Defenter, tried to flee, many of them to the church, hoping that they might find sanctuary there. But these rampaging Amersforters and Utrechters ignored any notion of sanctity that they thought the church may provide for them and butchered 17 people inside. In total, about 50 people died in Narden, and a further 200 or so were taken prisoner and sold for ransom. The Utrechters, probably high at first from their swift success, left the city after only about a day when they started getting jumpy about what the potential consequences of their actions might be. Unfortunately for Narden, by the way, this is not the last time the town is going to be violently violated by vicious veterans. After the loss of Freisweig and the sack of Narden, Josse de Lelang was out for revenge. He raised a force of around four to 5,000 men from the Zouder Quartier of Holland, which at this point referred to anything south of the River I, meaning towns such as Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Gouda, Dordrecht, among others. The forces were led by Jean Salazar, the Basque noble who had led the fight at the Battle of Scherpenzeil. That's three mentions of Scherpenzeil in one episode that's not even about Scherpenzeil. In the cold environs of late December, this Hollander army set out from Hethoi through land which was normally impossible, being that it was usually beautiful, soggy sphagnum. But due to the freezing conditions, it could now be traversed. They focused their wrath on the areas north of Utrecht, where the towns of Emnes, Barn, and Soest were all laid to waste. Following this, they seemed to have taken a break for Christmas, after which they moved on to the village of Vestbrook, 
which was destroyed on the 26th of December, which they called St. Stephen's Day. But in Australia, we call Boxing Day a day for playing cricket and therefore better known as St. Steve Smith's Day. Every wooden building in Vestbrook was set ablaze, with the exception, according to the Chronicles, of ones which nursing mothers and dying people were in. The stone church, which had only just been built that year, was also left undefiled. The destruction at Vestbrook by the Hollander army was clearly visible for those rebels standing on the walls of nearby Utrecht. A civilian force was hurriedly raised there to go and counter this, but it was far from a well-organized army. A Utrecht chronicle suggests that it was more like a bunch of brave lads who were so shocked by what they had seen that they rushed towards Vestbrook as quickly as possible to try and help the innocent people there. It tells us, quote, The civilians and mercenaries ran disorganized out of town. Whoever ran the fastest considered himself the bravest, end quote. There are countless times in history when the words brave and stupid should probably be interchanged. Perhaps if these Utrechter lads had taken a little bit more time to assess what was happening, they might have made such a swap. From the walls of the city, they had only been able to see a smaller part of the Hollander force. They did not realize that the army had in fact been broken into three, and when they approached, they were quickly surrounded on all three sides by a much larger force than anybody had reckoned upon. Realizing the precariousness of this situation, one of these brave-slash-stupid men, a city administrator called Arndt Reis, who was holding a red banner, quickly suggested that they turn around and get back to safety behind their walls as soon as possible. But another man, a captain of the cavalry, probably with a bit more experience in these matters, called Vincent van der Zwanenburg, countered this by saying, quote, Let us stand our ground, because if we flee, then we will all be killed or taken prisoner. End quote. Despite these prescient words of advice, however, panic quickly set in within the Utrechters and they broke. Aunt Rice, the guy holding the banner, either threw it to the ground or ripped it in half. Seeing this, the Hollanders did pretty much exactly what Fanders Vandenberg had predicted and warned against and mercilessly chased down the Utrechters, murdering anyone they could get their hands on. It is suggested that up to 1,500 men, including some of Utrecht's leading citizens, children, mercenaries, and farmers, died, either at the hands of the Hollanders or by falling through the ice into the wet peat bogs, in which they either drowned, bled out, or froze to death. The Chronicle says that women from Utrecht walked over the battlefield for days after the slaughter, trying to find their husbands' bodies, where they found dead men frozen into the ice, with expressions that made them look as though they were still living. The Battle of Vestbrook was a huge victory for the Cod-slash-Holland-slash-Maximilian forces, they came at an immense cost, however, for the people of Utrecht and the surrounding areas. The Utrechters needed allies, and in these days of division and discord, it was not difficult to find some. Given what a good job they were doing at being a pain in Maximilian's backside, Louis XI was of course willing to flirt with them enough for them to think he might be their guy. Another suitor to their cause, however, was the new Duke of Cleves, John II. His father, who you'll be surprised to learn was called John I, 
had been pro-Burgundian and had fought with William of Egmont in Helders to try and ensure that a pro-Burgundian government remained in power there following Charles the Bold's death. The younger John had fought alongside Charles the Bold at Neuss and at the Battle of Nancy. Despite this, however, he could not pass up the opportunity to wrench the powerful ecclesiastical seat of Utrecht from the grasp of the Burgundian apparatus if it was going to suit him. He intended on having his brother, Engelbrecht, installed in David's stead. Imagine having two brothers called John and Engelbrecht. <laughs> Engelbrecht was keen. It's not often that someone called Engelbrecht gets to make a, an impression on things. So he raised his own army and in collaboration with Jan van Montfort and the Hooks, he entered Utrecht so as to be appointed Ruvard or placeholder of the bishop. The local clergy denied this, but when men counted them by pointing swords at them, they reluctantly agreed. This left the still-deposed David of Burgundy standing isolated on soggy sinking soil, left bereft of local noble support, basically now counting on Frederick von Egmont, the Lord of Eiselstein, as his one solid ally. As the year spun into another, there was no resolution to this civil war in sight. On the 1st of January 1482, the Utrechters made a New Year's resolution. They decided to break open the Lech Dyke, which protected the floodplains between Utrecht and Holland. They pierced it about half a kilometer upstream from a church at Het Waal, but it was a cold and icy winter with a fierce and frozen prevailing wind. Great ice flows came down the river and rammed into the breach that they had made in the dike, widening the hole. Over the next two months, this had the unintended effect of allowing the waters to flood more into Utrecht than into Holland, which caused their own people the greatest amount of suffering as a result of their tactic. The devastation wrought on the people meant that by the end of February, Montfort had to order them to repair the hole, which in and of itself took three days of labour. Even though the idea did not work, and considering it wasn't the first time that Lowlanders had tried to manipulate the waterways for militaristic means, it was still a gnarly attempt whose theory was sound and of which historian Ard van Bemmel said, quote, All this shows that in the 15th century people knew well where the dike had to be pierced in order to hit Holland as much as possible, end quote. During those first months of 1482, David of Burgundy and Josse de la Lange set about implementing another set of offensives. In the middle of January, David set out with 125 knights from his stronghold at Vike by Durstede, southeast of Utrecht, while Josse de la Lange, who was in the recently pillaged Narda, north of Utrecht, took his men and did the same. They set about plundering the lands of Utrecht and the Sticht, trying to egg the Utrechters on and compel them to come out of their town and make open battle. When this did not happen, they looted a couple of cloisters, they trod on a few relics, they smashed church windows and stole whatever they could get their hands on. The women in one cloister fell to the bishop's feet, begging him for protection. He was, after all, their bishop, so he was supposed to be their spiritual protector. But here, David of Burgundy remained unmoved, simply answering that he would do no such thing. 
Inside the city of Utrecht itself, conditions were beginning to deteriorate as the blockade on its supply lines was really taking its toll. The price of grain skyrocketed. The city was falling into a financial black hole, what with all the disruption to its incomes and the need to pay for all this military action. So some inside Utrecht began to call for peace. In February, during peace talks between, on one side, the Lang and the Hollanders on behalf of Maximilian, and on the other side, the rebellious Utrechters, there were claims made by the Utrechters that Engelbrecht of Cleves had no problem with Maximilian himself, and that the only issue they had was with David of Burgundy. Unbeknownst to them, however, Engelbrecht had actually sent so-called Feitebriefen to both David of Burgundy and to Maximilian himself. A Feitebrief is kind of like a letter where you announce that you are renouncing peace with someone and that they should expect violence. It's like a 15th century version of a regular Facebook post. When these letters were brought out and shown to the Utrechters, they were embarrassingly put in their place. And so the peace negotiations stalled. It was around this time that Mary of Burgundy had her horse riding accident and died. Maximilian was thrust into a period of mourning as well as into all those political issues in Flanders regarding his regency over young Philip, which we spoke about in the first part of this episode. In his grief, Maximilian briefly escaped the political tumult to again go hunting in the Velua. David of Burgundy sent a message to him asking for more help, in response to which Maximilian just sent out a group of knights to go and join in the general harassment of Utrecht and the Styx's supply lines. Although this would be kind of useful, it was not enough to bring about any quick resolution to the war. As such, the violence in Utrecht and Holland dragged on. As we have seen, the Utrecht Civil War was characterized by a series of smash-and-grab raids, tit-for-tat retributive attacks and pillaging. Although it must have been misery for those stuck in the middle of it, for the sake of brevity, those of us who aren't stuck in the middle of it are going to skip over a bunch of them. Having said that, however, in July 1482, perhaps one of the most famous incidents in this war occurred, which we must quickly talk about. The Leap of Jan van Schaffelaar. Before we get into it, the only account of this story comes from a guy called Antoneus Matthäus, who in 1698 published a book known as the Unelector, which contained a copy of the Chronicle we've referenced earlier. It was written by an unknown author, and the original version of it has long since disappeared. There is much debate as to who the author of this Chronicle might have been, but although there is no consensus, most historians seem to agree that it was written by somebody close to the events. So here is the story of the Leap of Jan van Schaffelaar, as this anonymous author tells it. On the 16th of July, 1482, a cod force of 19 soldiers who had been based at the castle of Rosendahl took over the church of Barnefeld, about 10 kilometers from the rebel stronghold of Amersfoort. They had probably been ordered by David of Burgundy to do whatever they could to disrupt the supply line to the city of Utrecht. This small group of COD soldiers were led by a mercenary from Gelders called Jan van Schaffelaar. When in Barnefeld, they were encountered by an enemy force of rebellious Amersforters, accompanied by fellow Hook knights from a town called Nykerk. They killed several of the CODs, and they forced van Schaffelaar's men to seek refuge in the tower of the church. 
The hooks brought cannons and they began to shoot at the tower, leading the troops inside to beg for a parley. But the trapped cod troops had little leverage and the rebels stated, rather masochistically if you ask me, that they would only treat with them if they threw their commander, Jan van Scafalar, out of the tower. No one has any idea why they singled out him, one theory being that he had been present at the Battle of Scarpensale. That's four times in an episode. The men refused to throw their commander off the tower, which is very, very kind of them, but van Schaffelaar gave it all some thought, and he made a decision on his own. He stood up, and he said to his troops, quote, Liefe gesellen, ik moet ummersterven, ik en wil u in geen last bringen. Which translates roughly into, Dear brothers, I must die someday, and I do not wish to put you under any burden. And if there are any Dutch people out there saying, Oh, what a crappy accent. Yeah, well, that was 17th century Dutch. So, take that. As according to the Chronicle, but with our attempted translation from this 17th century Dutch, Jan van Schaffelaar, quote, went up to the top of the tower and stood with his hands by his side and he leaped from the top to below, end quote. Although van Schaffelaar somehow survived his fall, he was mortally injured and then the hook soldiers below just finished him off because that's what they wanted in the first place. But the story itself of Jan van Schaffelaar has had a great impact in the years since it maybe occurred. Now, considering the amount of time, as well as the massive social, economical, and political transformations that are going to occur in the Low Countries between the 1480s, when we are focusing, and the 1690s, when this account was published, it is impossible to know what bearing in truth this story has, if any. After all, the idea of a Dutch national identity was essentially brought into existence during that period. It is not too difficult to imagine that Schaffelaar's troops just accepted the demands and threw him off the tower to buy a chance to free themselves, and if they did, we would have no idea. They could have come out and just told everyone, yeah, Jan, what a great bloke, hero, threw himself off the tower for us, promise. All we have is that Matthias recounted the story, but it has since grown into a legend. Van Schaffelaar has been portrayed as a folks held a folk hero, whose actions have since been framed as displaying bravery, sacrifice, dignity, and honor. Like William Delamarque, the story of Van Schaffelaar provided great fodder for romantic writers and artists. In 1838, only about a decade after Walter Scott used the character of William Delamarque in his book Quentin Durard, the Dutch romantic author Jan Frederick Altmans who used the pseudonym Jan van den Hage, wrote a historical novel called The Schaapherder, or The Sheepherder, in which Van Schaffelaar was his protagonist, while nearly 150 years after that, in 1983, Thea Beckman used him as a character in her book, Hasse Simon's Doctor. Numerous Dutch artists, and particularly printmakers such as Tielemann Kato Browning in the 19th century, have used the moment that Van Schaffelaar leaped sacrificially off the tower as a powerful subject matter. In fact, during the 1800s, the study of history was being aligned to the significant political and social changes that were occurring across Europe, no less in the Netherlands. 
W.A. Alberts, who wrote the Geschiedenis des Vaderlands, History of the Fatherland, in 1855, used the story of Van Schaffelaar to justify covering the Stixer Orlok to the extent that he did. He wrote, quote, I would have swept you away from this war had it not been for a heroic fact that fully deserves to be remembered by you, end quote. So from this angle, an unverifiable and possibly mythical story was more important in projecting values onto a national identity than the details of the war itself. The importance of this story to the forging of Dutch national identity is also demonstrated by the fact that a large mural of Jan van Schaffelaar standing on the edge of the tower, arms by his side, looking determinedly forward as he prepares to jump, is depicted on one of the walls of the front hall of the Rijksmuseum, the Dutch National History Museum. In 2020, during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests and the worldwide discussions about colonial statues, one right-wing populist politician in the Netherlands, whose name we are not going to taint our podcast with, shared a photo of himself online, laying flowers at the statue of Jan van Schaffelaar in Barneveld with the caption, Our Hero. It is remarkable to see how the mythical ideas of somebody over centuries can become far removed from the historical facts of their life, if they are even facts. Also, as far as I can tell, a guy killing himself during a civil war in Utrecht in the 1480s doesn't have much to do with systemic racism in the 2020s, but I digress. So, despite the overblown importance that will be attributed to Jan van Schaffelaar's leap in later history, at the time it was really a nothing event, which made no major impact on the course of the war. There were further attacks by the hooks throughout Holland, they made a failed attempt to capture Dordrecht in April, and they briefly took Horn in July, before being forced out again by Le Lang's forces fighting under Jan van Egmont. De Le Lang was also able to capture two Hook strongholds nearby Utrecht, Harmelin and Terhaar, while Engelbrecht of Cleves sent men raiding through the Sticht. On the 1st of August 1482, Pope Sixtus IV again weighed in on things because at the end of the day, it was all about his decision anyway. He issued a papal bull which demanded obedience to Prince Bishop David and put a halt to all church activities in the city until David was reseated. Jan van Montfort encouraged Engelbrecht to appeal against the papal bull and continue on with the struggle and he forced the priests inside Utrecht to ignore the Pope and continue with their work. It's amazing what a threateningly sharp sword can do to your motivation against the Pope. You might recall that David of Burgundy had really only been left with one ally in the territory, the Lord of Eiselstein, Frederick van Egmont. Engelbrecht of Cleves and the rebellious Utrechters decided that their next move would be to nullify him by laying siege to Eiselstein. There was a great dislike between Utrecht and Eiselstein. 18th century historian Jan van Wachenaar writes that, quote, There was an old saying in Utrecht that the lords of Eiselstein, before they were born, were already enemies of Utrecht. End quote. The city was lightly defended and should have been easily captured by the force of 6,000 men, but they were able to hold out long enough for Frederick van Egmont to gather enough men to break the siege six weeks later. The momentum of the war began to shift in favour of the Hollanders, 
and the loyalists inside Utrecht, though they were forced to bring the campaigning to an end for the year when the most Dutch of all things, terrible weather, set in. It was also at this time that the Peace of Arras, which we spoke about in the first part of this episode, was signed, meaning that one of the last remaining hopes the rebels in Utrecht had for getting powerful foreign support was snuffed out. Louis XI and Maximilian had explicitly agreed there would be no French intervention in Utrecht. So now the rebels in Utrecht, much like those in Liège, would have to face the wrath of Archduke Maximilian alone. By April 1483, the mood inside the city of Utrecht had collapsed to the point that people were openly calling for peace. During the raid which Engelbrecht of Cleves led against the town of Rhenen, a group inside Utrecht decided that enough was enough. When David of Burgundy appeared at the walls of Utrecht with an army of 300 soldiers and 30 knights on the evening of April 21st, they seized the opportunity that the absence of Engelbrecht had provided them and opened the gates to him. David was welcomed back into his Episcopal city with a line of blazing torches being held for him by the people of Utrecht, and he once again took possession of his throne. But the sudden occupation of Utrecht by soldiers from Holland, with whom the people in Utrecht had been locked in a bloody struggle for the best part of three years, also roused angst among segments of the population, and they called to Amersfoort for help. So on the morning of the 3rd of May, a sort of commando raid took place, where a group of hook partisans from Amersfoort, led by the Lord of Niefelt, crossed a canal surrounding the city, scaled the walls, and successfully captured and kidnapped David of Burgundy. The bishop, who remember was a prince, was thrown naked onto a farmer's cart filled with fertilizer, or as it has at times been described, a dung wagon. He was humiliatingly brought back to Amersfoort, where he was then held hostage. He'd really landed in a heap, a stinking, smelly pile of trouble. And uh, by the way, speaking of wagon, and very late into this episode, it's time for everybody's favourite, somewhat informative, but most definitely irreverent segment of this podcast, Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. The English word wagon comes from the Dutch word, and this will shock you, wagen, meaning wagon. So there's that. And if you are looking for a wagon to jump on, may I suggest the Melbourne Demons bandwagon of 2021. Wagon. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. By this stage, Maximilian had personally travelled to Holland to be formally recognised in his position as regent for Philip there, he decided that now was the time to end matters in Utrecht once and for all. So at the head of an army of around 12,000 men and 2,000 knights, he oversaw an attack on the city of Utrecht. The siege of Utrecht of 1483 would last for two months, and the fighting was intense. Engelbrecht of Cleves was taken prisoner by Maximilian after a set of peace talks went wrong, and the Stadthalder of Holland, Josse de Lelang, was killed in action. By the end of August, both sides were ready for peace, and so on the 3rd of September, 1483, the siege ended and a peace treaty was agreed to. Maximilian then moved on to Amersfoort to free David, but by now the Amersforters had realised that the situation was hopeless, and so they too agreed to lay down their arms. In the peace treaty, Maximilian was recognised as the new temporal lord of the Sticht, 
Remember that as Prince Bishop, David of Burgundy had wielded both the spiritual and temporal power within Utrecht. But now, no longer. Although David would remain as the bishop, Maximilian appointed the Lord of Eichelstein, Frederick van Egmond, as his stadthalder in the bishopric. The terms of the peace treaty were nowhere near as harsh as we have seen former Dukes of Burgundy foist upon defeated rebellious cities. Eighty of the leading citizens of Utrecht were to appear before him bareheaded on their knees begging for forgiveness. The city of Utrecht and Jan van Montfort would have to pay him 20,000 Rhenish Helders as well as repay the damage they had caused in Holland and the walls of the city which had been destroyed in the siege would not be allowed to be rebuilt. But besides that, there would be a general peace with all of the rebels, including their leader, Jan van Montfort, who, besides having some lands stripped from him, went largely unpunished. And I'm sure that'll work out just fine. He'll just slip quietly into the night and not cause any further troubles later on. But that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of our tale of two bishops. We have seen how Maximilian was forced into a corner by the Flemish that he would have rather stayed out of. His son had been claimed by the city of Ghent, who were basically going to use their possession of him to rule Flanders themselves. And to bring an end to the war with France, Maximilian had been obliged to agree to the selling off of his daughter to the French king's son. Despite this, though, with the cessation of that war, he had been able to concentrate on curtailing the rebellions in Liège and Utrecht, and this would give him a chance to think about and observe how the lowlanders go about rebellion, because he was pretty soon going to have to deal with those ever-rebellious Flemish. Maybe we should have considered calling this podcast The History of Flemish Revolts. Oh well, until next time, doei! Thank you for listening to The History of the Netherlands. We're aware that we took a fairly substantial break recently, but thank you for your patience, and we are back now and hoping to crack on into the 16th century. Of course, you can always help us crack on with ever greater motivation if you do things like go and give us a five-star review on, yeah, Apple, but also just anyway, if you just want to go to restaurant websites and put in five stars for us, that's fine. Just write it in the comments if you just want to get a pen and scribble five stars on a wall, that's also fine. Just let people know. Your five stars are for History of the Netherlands. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter, at History of NL. And, of course, if you really love the show, you can do what our very favorite people on the planet do, and that's support us on Patreon. There, you can become an esteemed signatory to the great privilege of Patreon, just like these people did. Rufus. Rufus, the Australian in me wants to call you Rufy, but I also don't think that's very appropriate. So instead, your nickname is Decker. Cheers, Decker. Rosa. Rosa, Rosa. Rosa, Rosa, Rosa. We want to thank you very much for your lovely message once again and keep on cracking on so that we can keep on cracking on. Cheers very much, Rosa. Curtis Fairmulm. I don't know what a mulm is, Curtis, but no matter how far away it gets, you are always close to our hearts. Cheers, mulmy. Aiden Gort, which is a great name. The pensionary of Brussels we spoke about earlier was called Gort Ruland, so for that reason, your nickname is Rulo. And Oscar KC. 
Now that Oscar McDonald has left the Melbourne Demons, our favourite Oscar was the Sesame Street character, but now it's you. So, cheers, Grouchy. As for everyone else, we'll see you next time on The History of the Netherlands. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.